do a sutta tonight or today that has to do with karma. It seems a lot of people have some strange ideas about karma. So maybe this will help clear it up a bit. Karma means action. So, thus as I heard on one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Sawati and Jetta's Grove, Anathan and Dika's Park. Then the Brahmin student Sabha, Todia's son, went to the Blessed One, exchanged greetings with him. <clears throat> when this courteous and amiable talk was finished, he sat down at one side and asked the Blessed One, Master Gotama, what is the cause and condition why human beings are born to be inferior and superior? For people are seen to be short-lived and long-lived, sickly and healthy, ugly and beautiful, uninfluential and influential, poor and wealthy, low-born and high-born, stupid and wise. Oh, I'm sorry, Sutta number 135, um, the, the Chula Kama Vibhanga Sutta. Master Gotama, why human beings are seen to be inferior and superior? Student, now this is something that I think you want to pay attention to because this is the whole reason why we're here because of our past karma, our past actions. Beings are owner of their actions, heirs of their actions. They originate from their actions, are bound to their actions. They have their actions as their refuge. It is action that distinguishes beings as inferior and superior. Now it's real interesting when you think, why am I here? What's the reason that we're here? We are here, right here, right now because of our past actions, good and bad. When you start doing the six R's and you start practicing your meditation, you are accumulating a lot of good karma. You're pointing your mind towards the wholesome. The more wholesome you become, the clearer your mind becomes, the less hindrances will bother you because you start to really understand how this process works. 
This is how it's all interconnected. So it's a real interesting phenomena to realize that actions lead towards the wholesome or towards the unwholesome, depending on what they are. But the more wholesome your mind becomes, the more you start understanding the impersonal nature of everything. And then you become much more careful with your actions. You start to take care of keeping your precepts without breaking them. And as you do that, that, that leads your mind more and more towards the wholesome. So you can get off of this wheel of birth and death this wheel of sansara, which we're all caught in. So, I'm going to read this statement again. Beings are owners of their actions, heirs of their actions. They originate from their actions, are bound to their actions, have their actions as their refuge. It is action that distinguishes beings as inferior or superior. I do not understand in detail the meaning, Master Gotama's statement, which he spoke in brief without expounding the detailed meaning. Now, this is an interesting sentence because a lot of people just listened to the Buddha's talk. They didn't fully understand what he was talking about. And they're too shy to ask questions. Asking questions is good. There's no such a thing as a bad question. So, it would be good, Master Gotama, if you would teach me the Dhamma so that I might understand in detail the meaning of Master Gotama's statement. <clears throat> then student, listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, sir, the Brahmin student Subha replied, the Blessed One said this, here, some man or woman kills living beings, is murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state of deprivation, in an unhappy destination. 
even in hell. But if on the dissolution of the body after death, he does not reappear in a state of deprivation and unhappy destination, but instead comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he has a short life. This is the way, students, that leads to short life, namely, one kills living beings and is murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. This, there's always been the question of the crib death. A little baby comes into being and dies in a short time after being born. The reason that that happened is because in their past, they killed other living beings. So, that is an answer for crib death. Why did that happen? Uh, some some people say, well, because you shook the baby too much, or you did this, or you did that. No, it, it's a natural process of karma and the way that it, it works. Now, here, student, some man or woman abandoning the killing of living beings abstains from killing living beings, with rod and weapon laid aside, gentle and kindly. He abides compassionate to all living beings. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination even in a heavenly world. But if on the dissolution of the body after death, he does reappear in, in a happy, he does not reappear in a happy destination in a heavenly world, but instead comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he has a long life. This is the way, student, that leads to a long life, namely abandoning the killing of living beings. And there's a lot of insects and, and animals that you don't feel comfortable being around, but you don't want to kill them. You want to make it uncomfortable for them to be there. Now, they did a study in San Francisco that was in the newspaper some years back. And San Francisco and all the restaurants, they have cockroaches because the buildings have been around forever and ever. And they found out that if you cut up a cucumber in small pieces and put it on a plate where they, they 
can get in and out, they'll leave. They'll go to another place. And ants are, are a big problem for a lot of people. Uh, cayenne pepper works very good on ants. Doesn't kill them, makes, them unple makes it unpleasant. Just put it across a line that the ants are walking in and they'll stop walking on that in that line. They'll go some other place. So trying to make it uncomfortable for those animals instead of killing them. It helps you have an extended long life. So one abstains from killing living beings with rod and weapon laid aside gentle and kindly. One abides compassionate to all living beings. I had a student in Malaysia that she was a very good housekeeper, but in Asia, the, the biggest problem is ants. And one day, she just got through cleaning the kitchen, walked out, came back a little while later, and there's a line of ants. So she very patiently just kind of scooped them off and took them outside. And she came back into the kitchen. There was a line of ants again. So she got a insect killer, a spray killer, and she killed them. Now this student, she was sitting four hours a day. Great meditator. Right after she did that, she couldn't sit for more than a half an hour without getting up. What happens when you kill living beings, even though you don't get bugs and that sort of thing, you don't really think much about, but it causes you to have a guilty mind because all beings want to live as long as they possibly can. Anyway, I was in Indonesia at the time and I came back. The night that I came back, she gave me a phone call. I don't know how she knew I was back. Anyway, she said, I'm gonna quit meditating. I don't wanna meditate anymore. And I said, why? She said, I don't know. I just don't wanna meditate anymore. I can't sit more than a half an hour. So I asked her what precept she broke. She said, I didn't break any precept. The next day she can't, and I told her she can't stop meditating. Oh, and in Asia, when a monk tells you to do something like that, you, you follow their directions. So the next day she called up, I, I'm not gonna meditate anymore. I said, what precept did you break? She said, actually, I did break a precept and I killed a bunch of ants. And she told me the story about why she did it. And I told her, I now I see what the problem is. 
you can solve this problem by in in Malaysia they have uh, live animal uh, butchers so you can go in and you can buy a chicken and they'll they'll butcher the chicken and take the feathers off and then give it to you so I told her to go to buy some chickens a couple of them and don't have the butcher kill them just tie their feet up take the chickens into the forest and let them go free with letting go of the guilty feeling of killing the bucks so she did that and she came home and she sat for four hours See, breaking any of the precepts, especially when you're on retreat, but any time, any time you break a precept, you know you're doing something that's not quite right. And it causes remorse or guilt to arise in your mind. Now, you can slough it, slough, slough it off and just say, ah, that was nothing, and, and you just forget about it. But it, they always come back. That's the nature of karma. It always comes back. And it will come back in the form of not being able to uh, sit with a quiet mind. You get restless one of the hindrances is going to arise and distract you. This is the, the cause of all distractions is breaking one of the precepts. In the past, you might know what it was. It might happen 500 lifetimes ago. When conditions are right, then it will arise. So, buying uh, fish that are going to be killed, go to a restaurant where they're displaying, well, I want that fish or I want that lobster. And then buying it live and letting it go free helps build up a lot of good karma because it is a very wholesome act. So it's very important for you to understand the mindset of the animal that you let go free. They know they're caught. They know they're going to die very soon. The chickens in the market, they see other chickens being killed in front of them. So they know as soon as a butcher comes after them and grabs them, that they're going to die and they have a lot of fear of death. But instead of dying, they get their feet tied and they're still alive. And then they go for a ride in a car out to a wild place 
in, in Asia, it's very easy to get out of town and get into the forest. And there's a lot of animals in the forest. So now the chicken is still afraid, but you take and you cut the string off their, their feet and you push them out into the forest and wish them happiness. And they went from the worst day in their life to the best day in their life. They get to live. Now people, they, they have a tendency to say, well, the, the chicken's gonna die in the forest. Well, chickens know how to survive. They know how to get food. They can take care of themselves. They might get caught by another animal. They might get killed tomorrow, but it doesn't matter. What matters is what you're doing with them right in the present. It's their karma to um, deal with. They might get, get killed a, a week later. It might be a month. It might be a year. Who knows? It's the same with all of us. We might die in tomorrow. We might die in a week. We might die in a year. Who knows? But thinking about it and worrying about it doesn't really help your situation in life. That kind of doubt, that kind of uh, worry and anxiety is just a hindrance that's caused from past action. So, here, student, some man or woman, abandoning the killing of living beings, abstained from killing living beings with rod and weapon laid aside, gentle, kindly. He abides compassionate to all living beings. Because of performing and undertaking such an action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination, even in a heavenly world. But if on the dissolution of the body after death, he does not reappear in a happy destination in a heavenly world, but instead comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he has a long life. This is the way, student, that leads to long life, namely abandoning of killing living beings. One abstains from killing living beings with rod and weapon laid aside, gentle, kindly. One abides compassionate to all living beings. Here, student, some man or woman is given to injuring beings with a hand, with a clod, with a stick, with a knife. 
because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state of deprivation. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is sickly. This is the way, student, that leads to sickliness. Namely, one is given to injuring beings with a hand, with a clod, with a stick, with a knife. But here some student, a man or woman, is not given to injuring beings with a hand, with a clod, with a stick, with a knife. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is healthy. This is the way, student, that leads to health. Namely, one is not given to injuring beings with a hand, with a clod, with a stick, or a knife. Here, student, some man or woman is of angry and irritable character. Even when criticized a little, he is offended and becomes angry, hostile, and resentful and displays that anger and hate and bitterness. Because of performing and undertaking such action, he reappears in a state of deprivation. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is ugly. Now, have you ever looked at a person who's angry and look at their face, their face is really ugly. Their skin turns to turn black. And their features become very sharp and unpleasing. So what do you do when you see somebody like that? Run away from them? Or do you start having compassion towards that person because you see that they are causing themselves a lot of upset? So you take responsibility for setting the energy around that person towards the wholesome. I've been in situations where people would get very angry like that. And I radiate loving kindness to them. And before long, they settle down. They still might be talking a lot of garbage. But why would I pay attention to what they're saying when they're in an emotional state? So 
keep radiating loving kindness to them and forgiveness for their not understanding. After a period of time, then you can discuss what the real problem is because most of the time it's not what they're yelling about. It, there's another cause for it. So then you can resolve problems much more easily with a quiet, balanced mind. Developing a mind that has disenchantment in it is a very good thing. So the more you can do that, the clearer your mind becomes, the brighter your mind becomes. And the more accepting, you can agree to disagree, but you don't have to fight about it. So, but here, students, some man or woman is not of an angry and irritable character. Even when criticized a lot, he is not offended. Why would he become offended when he sees that somebody is gossiping and making, trying to make trouble for you. Why become offended at that? The whole practice is you learn loving kindness. You learn to radiate loving kindness. You learn to radiate forgiveness. Because you are in charge of you. You can still right wrongs without being highly emotional about it. it. Takes a lot longer to solve a problem if there's a lot of emotion involved. Our emotion is, is our habitual tendency. We have feelings arise and they're painful feelings, they're hurtful feelings. And then we try to think those feelings away. And that's when we get caught in your emotional snits. So what do we do? We learn to take the six R's with us all the time. And use the six R's when we start seeing that our mind is acting in an unwholesome way. As you go deeper in your practice, you're going to have more and more balance in your mind. You're going to have more and more disenchantment in your mind. And that leads to a happy life.
So he does not become offended, does not become angry, hostile, and resentful, and does not display anger, hate, and bitterness because of performing and undertaking such action, he reappears in a happy destination. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is beautiful. Now, one of the things that's really amazing at this center, and I've seen it for years and years and years, is when people start practicing loving kindness, their faces become very beautiful, radiant. Sometimes some people, it seems like they could go into a dark room and just stay with that uplifted, happy mind and they could light up the room. Now, if you want to affect the world around you in a positive way, the more you focus on loving kindness and radiating compassion and smiling, the more you will affect the world around you in a positive way. Now, when you do this, your face becomes beautiful and the energy around you becomes peaceful and calm, open and loving. So the more you can remember to do that, the more you affect the world around you in a positive way, especially around people that are upset in one way or another, or they have some kind of physical problem you're never helpless, ever. If you can remember to use the six R's and radiate loving kindness and smile into things as much as you possibly can. Every time you get into a serious mind, You get into a judgmental mind. You get into a critical mind. And when that happens, you are affecting the world around you in a negative way. So, you take responsibility for yourself. And the more you can realize that happy, uplifted mind, the more you can experience it, the easier your life becomes and people around you benefit greatly from that. And your face will start to change and you'll start to have more and more light coming from your face that people will notice and they'll, they'll even remark that your face is very beautiful. Your face is very radiant. So, this is the way, student, that leads to being beautiful. Namely, one is not an angry and irritable character.
and does not display anger, hate, and bitterness. Here, students, some men or women, is envious, who envies and resents and begrudges the gains, honor, renown, reverence, salutation, and veneration received by others. Because of performing and undertaking such action, he reappears in a state of deprivation. But if instead he comes back to the human state wherever he is reborn, he is uninfluential. So being envious and and jealous of other people because of their gains and their, their prosperity causes you to be uninfluential. And you can have the greatest ideas in the world about how to do something or how to fix something. And because of your past envy and the gossip and all of that kind of stuff that reoccurs, nobody's going to pay attention to you. So you can have the greatest way of doing something, or you can have very sincere wishes for other people's happiness, but they aren't going to pay attention to you so much. You're not going to be able to influence them one way or the other whether something is a good idea or not. And this comes from being envious and resentful and begrudging somebody else's prosperity. This is a way, student, that leads to being uninfluential Namely, one is envious towards the gains, honor, respect, reverence, salutation, and veneration received by others. But here, student, some man or woman is not envious. One who does not envy, resent, and begrudge the gains, honor, and respect, re and reverence, and salutations received by others. Because of performing and undertaking such action, he reappears in a happy destination. But if instead he comes to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he has great influence. People pay attention to him. And the more you can keep your, your precepts without breaking them, the more influence you have with other people because of your actions. Because they see whether you are actually honest that old saying do as i say not as i do well when people see you do things that aren't so good they're not going to be influenced by your thinking so much
This is the way, students, that leads to being influential. Namely, one is not envious towards the gain, honor, respect, reverence, salutation, and veneration received by others. Here, students, some man or woman does not give food, drink, clothing, carriages, garlands, scents, unguents, beds, dwellings, and lamps to receive to recluses and Brahmins. Now it's not that way so much anymore. That you have to give lamps and that sort of thing. But during the time of the Buddha, they didn't have electricity. So lamps were needed for uh, being able to see at night. But practicing your generosity in all ways. Uh, when I was growing up every Christmas, my mother in October or so started buying a little bit extra food and she would put it in a box. And then at Christmas time, there would be a family, we were Christians, so it was in the church that was going through a very difficult time. They were going through a period where somebody had died or they financially got into problems and they were hurting very much. And on Christmas Eve, my brother and I would have two or three boxes of food to give to these uh, different people. And we would put it on the doorstep and ring the doorbell and run away so that they got an, uh, an anonymous gift. Of course, people always came back to us and said, did you do this? But that's, that's okay. That's one of the things that for me made Christmas so special. Not the fact that I was gonna be getting some kind of gift or other from other people, but that I could give where it was really needed. One of the things that I found out, okay, yeah, but I need it for here. And that's why I had it down like that. He's fixing my lamp. Uh, Anthony, uh, Tony Robbins became very, very popular and very, very wealthy. And I heard his story. When he was a young boy, he saw a lot of families that were uh, very poor and didn't have enough food. So he would go out on a paper route and get the money and he would buy food and then he would start just donating. And he's done that for his whole life. That's one of the reasons that he's very prosperous. 
and uh, the last I heard, he had a foundation that people could donate to and nobody was paid in the foundation. All of the money that came to his foundation went to buying food for people around the world. And he has like over a million and a quarter people that he gives to every year. That's one of the reasons why he was or is so prosperous. Of course, there's other things that he does. But if the main reason for doing that is to practice your generosity. Generosity is extremely important. Now, when I'm in Asia, people have this idea, you only give to monks. And I tried to get people to understand that generosity is a lot more than just giving some material thing to monks. Practicing your generosity means practicing an uplifted mind and giving that uplifted mind to other people. The Buddha said, if you saw how important it is to give food to other people, you would never eat alone. Now that says a lot to practice your generosity with people around you as much as you can and do it with a happy, uplifted mind and prepare the food if it's, if it's something that you're making and you share with other people, prepare the food with a happy, uplifted mind. Now, I've been a monk for a long time and there were people uh, that they didn't really want to be giving the food to the monks and they would prepare the food with a unwholesome mind. When it was donated to me and I started eating it, it would give me a stomach ache. Even though it might have been really expensive food. They were putting the negative energy into that food. Now they were they were on a list and they would feed me once a week. When they fed me once a week, I also had another family that wanted to donate, bring their food too. And they did it with loving kindness and I could eat. Sometimes I went very hungry because some of the food that was prepared in a negative way uh, caused me physical upset. So when you practice your generosity, don't practice your generosity with a begrudging 
attitude. Practice your generosity with a happy mind and give it with a happy mind and then reflect on what, what you gave later with how much fun it was to give that food away. And to this day, every, around Christmas day, I always reflect on how we used to give boxes of food to people that really needed it and how it made their mind happy. So this is the importance of generosity. It takes you out of thinking about yourself all the time. And it helps you to realize that there's a lot of suffering around you. Sometimes it's um, bigger and more intense for some people. Sometimes it's just the dissatisfactions of everyday life, but there's a lot of suffering around you. When you practice your generosity, you practice having an uplifted mind, you will affect that other people around you in a positive way and help them to overcome their suffering. And that's what this is all about. And there are four requisites that monks have to have to live. They have to have food. They have to have uh, clothing. They have to have a place to stay and they have to have medicine. Now I'm very careful about talking to people about my health because all of a sudden I start getting so many different kinds of medicine that I can't use them all. And my health is reasonable for right now. So, if you want to be prosperous, if you want to be rich, that's one of the things in Asia, especially the Chinese every year, they, Chinese New Year, they want to be rich. That's one of their wishes for the year. If you want that to occur, then give. Give verbally with kind speech that help other people to be happy. With kind actions that help them overcome their problem, whatever it happens to be, a flat tire or helping somebody across the street that has trouble walking, whatever. Extend yourself outside, outside of yourself. That's what generosity is for. Being careful with your speech so that other people will smile and be happy. 
and mentally radiate happiness to others as much as you can remember. If you're walking down the street, you have to get from one place to another. What are you doing with your mind? Well, why don't you smile and radiate loving kindness to everybody you see? Now, for women, I recommend you don't look other people in the eye when you radiate loving kindness unless you really want to because it can be misread and that can lead to complications in your life. But with your eyes down, radiating loving kindness to all the little beings around you, the little kids that eat that stuff up. And they find it quite shocking that somebody would love them, even though they don't know them. Okay. Here, student, some man or woman is obstinate and arrogant. He does not pay homage to one who should receive homage, does not rise up for one in whose presence you should rise up does not offer a seat to one who deserves a seat, does not make way for one for whom he should make way, and does not honor, respect, revere, and venerate one who should be honored, respected, revered, and venerated. Because of performing and undertaking such action, he reappears in a state of deprivation. But if instead he comes back to the human state, wherever he is reborn, he is low-born. That means being reborn in very poor families that are not educated. And not influential at all. This is the way, student, that leads to low birth. Namely, one is obstinate and arrogant and does not honor, respect, and revere and venerate one who should be honored, respected, revered, and venerated. But here, student, some man or woman is not obstinate and arrogant. He pays homage to one who should receive homage. He rises up for one in whose presence he should rise up. He offers a seat to one who deserves a seat. This always brings up the story of when I was on a bus in, in Sri Lanka and was pretty full. And um, I was content just to stand and hold on to something and, and get the ride. A pregnant woman got out of her seat and gave me her seat. Now, I was obliged to take it because that was an act of generosity that was really, really amazing to me. 
So I took the seat and she gave me the most beautiful smile. And she was very happy that she could do that. Fortunately, another man saw this whole thing and got up and offered her a seat to sit down so I didn't feel quite so guilty. But I was amazed that she would do something like that. She made herself uncomfortable so I could have some comfort in sitting down. And that's how much honor and respect monks have in Asia. We don't have so, so much of that in, in the West, but people are starting to understand more and more how you practice your generosity in this kind of way. There are some monks that are just like every other human being, they're obstinate, they're very arrogant, and they think that you, you should, they demand that you should practice your generosity towards them. But there was something that happened when I was taking care of my uh, teacher, Lucille Ananda, back in the 1980s, 82. He kept on telling me, when you take care of Dhamma, Dhamma takes care of you. So that was a lesson in being humble. To be quite honest, I always, people uh, offer me things, they donate things. I'm not expecting anything. I'm just happy that I can give Dhamma and help other to have uplifted mind. That's my goal in life, is to help other people to be happy. And to get off the whale of samsara, that's a, that's a big one too. But the more gentle and kind a person can be, the more humble they become. And because of that, if they're reborn in the human state, they're going to be very high born and people are going to go out of their way to help you in whatever ways they can. Okay. Here are students, a man or woman, when visiting a recluse or a Brahmin, does not ask, Venerable Sir, what is wholesome, what is unwholesome, what is blamable, what is, what is blameless, what should be cultivated, what should not be cultivated, what kind of action will lead to harm and suffering for a long time, 
what kind of action will lead to my welfare and happiness for a long time? These are kind of questions that you can ask when you go see monks, when you go see teachers. These are the kind of things that will help you a lot. <coughs> When I started taking care of Usilananda, he was a brilliant monk, by the way. Absolutely one of the smartest men I've ever met. I had done meditation, but I didn't know anything about Buddhism when I started taking care of him. So I kept on asking him questions over and over and over again. I kept on asking questions. What do I do in this situation? What do I do with that? Is it right to, for me to do this? Oh, I got in the habit of asking him well, probably 20 to 25 questions a day about whether it's right to do this, how, how you take care of this kind of situation. I wish he was still around because I have more questions, but I don't have many people that I can ask. Anyway, I'll, I'll give you what he told me after a while. But the, to be able to ask these kind of questions, Here, student, some man or woman, when visiting a recluse or Brahmin, ask, Venerable Sir, what is wholesome? What kind of action will lead to my welfare and happiness for a long time? Because of performing and undertaking such action, he reappears in a happy destination. The asking questions helps you to be reborn in a happy destination. But if instead he comes back to the human state, wherever he is reborn, he is intelligent. Usilananda at one point, near the end of the two years I was with him, I asked him a question about something and he stopped and he looked at me and he said, If you're reborn a human being, you're gonna be the smartest man in the world because you keep on asking me questions. And I said, well, you know, I, really, I just wanna know. But it was a, a real important experience for me to be with someone that was so wholesome and so kind and so uplifted and so intelligent. It was really a blessing that I had for a couple of years doing that and getting to help him in all kinds of ways. Now, one of the things in Asia, especially with the Chinese, they are told never to ask questions of a teacher, never. And always after a Dhamma talk, I ask if there's any questions. Oh, no, everybody's down. 
and I would bring this sutta up and I would tell them if they don't ask questions their next lifetime, they're going to be stupid. So all of a sudden there's some hands coming up. They didn't want to be stupid in the next lifetime. So they started asking questions. So I'll keep on going here. This is what the Buddha says. Beings are owners of their actions. You can't blame someone else for your actions. Your actions are yours. Heirs of their actions. They originate from their actions. You originate from, the, from your actions. That's why you're here now. Because of your past actions, your past attachments, your past unwholesome actions. Your past wholesome actions. Because you are taking an interest in the Buddha's teaching and how wholesome that is, that means you are developing being more influential in times to come. We are bound to our actions. Actions uh, take, we take refuge in our actions. It is actions that distinguishes beings inferior and superior. When this was said, the Brahmin student Sabha, Todia's son said to the Blessed One, Magnificent Master Gotama, Magnificent. Master Gotama has made the Dhamma clear in many ways, as though he were turning upright what was overturned, revealing what was hidden, showing the way to one who was lost, or holding up a lamp in the dark for those with eyesight to see forms. I go to Master Gotama for refuge and to the Dhamma and Sangha of monks. Let Master Gotama remember me as a lay follower who has gone to him for refuge for life. Now generally what that, that kind of uh, ending it means that that person's understanding became so clear that they became a sotapanna just from listening to the Dhamma and understanding it. So with that said, do you have any questions? I have a question. Yes, please. Yeah, so um, in thinking about actions, um, it seems that in many situations, you know, we are social beings, we, we interact with other beings. So um, a lot of times an action might affect more than just yourself in that moment or possibly down the line. Um, for example, um, you know, these are kind of extreme examples, but in the example of a person who chooses to drink and drive, 
and then causes um, harm to another person, perhaps paralyzing that person that they wrecked with, or in the case of like the sudden infant death syndrome or crib's death, um, that parent might feel a real sense of loss of that child. And so that person's actions are affecting another's. So I'm just curious about how we should think about others' actions on our lives. Um, try to be around as many people as you can that are wholesome. That don't drink and drive. That don't take drugs. That keep the precepts as closely as possible. Try to be around as many people like that as you possibly can. You can also uh, you can influence other people by your actions, by not allowing them to drive and or drink and drive. Order them a cab. Don't don't allow unwholesome actions to occur within reason. Now, being around. Uh, some people that are doing drugs, you don't feel comfortable around them, get up and leave. That is a wholesome action, isn't it? And that affects other people around them so that they might not do that anymore. But you're, you're in charge of yourself. Although you can influence other people towards the wholesome without being overbearing about it. One of the things that uh, is a mistake that a lot of Christians make is try to force you to listen to what they think is the right path to take. Buddhists are not into propagating, not into uh, tricking people into listening what the Buddha said. We live by example. We show other people the way to do things properly. But we don't try to convince them that this is the only way. Okay? Thank you. Um, I, just to add to, to that, um, I guess for me at least, um, because knowing that we, we're all like kind of related in, in our actions and, and one person's actions can affect another, um, it presents a bit of an issue when we think, for me personally, presents a bit of an, or presents a bit of an issue thinking about whether um, you know, a negative thing in my life is my karma or because somebody caused something. Well, is it your action that's causing that negative thing? Right, exactly. So in the example, if I were to be the person that was paralyzed from a drunk driver, was that because of something I had done or was that a direct cause of somebody else's karma? I don't know how to answer karmic questions like that because it's your karma. Ask your intuition if you're the actual cause and what that cause was. Asking your intuition. A lot of people, they play it down quite a bit, but anybody that's successful follows their intuition. Okay. 
get in the habit of asking questions of yourself, whether what I did in the past was the cause of this or that, you'll get the answer. And you'll also know how to adjust so you can go towards the wholesome. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Okay, Doug. Hi, yeah, I'm uh, doing pretty good with not breaking precepts. Uh, the only challenge for me is, is harsh language. And that's usually when other drivers unintentionally try to kill me. Uh, <laughs> how, how important is it not to mentally break a precept? So just thinking something. Oh, it, it, it comes down to action. You can have a thought of killing someone, but you don't take any action towards it. There's no, no real bad karma that happens from it. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Elizabeth. Ante, this isn't directly related to karma, but I, I did want to ask you this, and maybe it is. It's, um, I was on a Dharma discussion group yesterday, and I had something happen where I was at the markets, and I had a couple of very negative contacts um, in very quick succession. A dog rushed up to my me and my dog, and then a big lid off a freezer at the markets flew in the air, it was really windy and hit and came towards my face. And because of the way that you've taught me about smiling, letting go, you know, it's become gradually becoming part of my operating system to instead of getting clunch, clit, uh, what do you call it? Like um, clinching, like getting tight, yeah. just like smiling or laughing for no reason. And so I, I felt the threat. I felt like a physical threat of the dog and this thing. And, um, and then I noticed that after the initial shock, I, I started to feel like kind towards the person with the dog and I made a joke. So in this discussion group, I was, I was sharing this and the lady said, um, well, because you're smiling and laughing, you're trying to control. Oh, no. And she said, um, what you should be doing is you should be evaluating the thought that you're having. What thought were you having that as that thing came towards you and as the dog, dog came towards you? She said, smiling and laughing is you're trying to control and that that is not the Dharma. And I just I, it was interesting because. Yeah, I just I, I, I wondered what you thought about that. Well, an awful lot of people have an awful lot of weird ideas that don't necessarily agree with uh, the things that I teach. I get criticized because the Buddha never said directly that you need to smile and laugh. But it's what you're doing with your mind at the time. That's what counts. That's what counts. And your actions. Right. 
So her saying that you're trying to control, what are you trying to control? You're trying to control yourself <laughs> and, and let go of the anxieties and fears and, and um, these, these other things that can arise. So I, I don't agree with what that person said at all of trying to control. Huh? Yeah, what is right effort? Yeah. Letting go of the unwholesome, relaxing, and developing wholesome. That's right effort all and, the way through. And Bhante, in the dependent origination, yeah. you, you teach contact, feeling, and perception right. uh, rising together where she was talking about you need to be much more in touch with what you're thinking and the thought that is generating that fear response. Where, where does thought come into dependent origination? I, I didn't, I didn't, con probably my past karma is why that dog rushed up to me and why that thing came towards my face. Right. But um, where does thinking show up in dependent origination? It doesn't really. Hmm. Um, it is it is arising a lot with habitual tendency. Okay. So I, I would have to say if, if you're really looking for a spot, bhava would be it. But don't overthink karma. Yeah. Because it'll drive you crazy. It really <laughs> will. Why does uh, the karma of everybody that's in this group, why did it come together right now? And what is the cause of all of these different people being here? <laughs> so the thing is, you're response to what arises and your response for that situation was wholesome. It was uplifted. You weren't taking it personally. See, the thing that, that your friend doesn't understand want to control who wants to control who is causing themselves suffering by wanting to control so it, it gets kind of tricky but it all comes down to following your intuition and leading to a lighter happier mind not only for you, but for people around you. Mm. So that's, that's kind of the answer that I would give to her mm. or him, whoever it happened to be, it doesn't yeah. matter. But a lot of people get really confused with, uh, with karma and they want to blame karma. How can you blame karma? It's yours. What's happening to you right now? How can you blame it? 
it's just a, uh, a bringing together of wholesome and unwholesome things that you took personally that are starting to arise now. The, I think the biggest thing in Buddhism is the understanding of the impersonal nature of everything and being to see it and recognize it. And if there is seeing and recognizing of the impersonal nature, there is no suffering. So, thank you. More you follow your intuition and develop that beautiful, happy mind. Yeah. You're doing it right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you, Bonte. Okay. Anybody else? Uh, Bonte, I have a, a few questions, please. Okay. Um, it talked about in the sutta, you just read how hurting others with, a, I think, a rod or stick or any sort of you know, physical action okay, could cause a sickliness. Right. What if you hurt someone with your words? Does that cause sickliness or what is the, the effect of that? Well, you have to be careful with them. Why would you use words that would get people so upset that it would cause them uh, pain? I don't know. I'm just wondering if it, if it was you know treated the same karmically or if it's well, that's part of the actions. Sure. So you have to be careful with your words. Okay. Probably the biggest problem with keeping the precepts is the fourth precept, which has to do with speech of all different kinds. Should be honest, not dividing other people, one from another. And the worst part is the gossip, the making up stories that aren't true and then trying to convince somebody that it is true and have somebody believe you, well, that's bad karma. That, and I, um, I know in Asia in particular, there are an awful lot of people that really get into their gossip. And gossip is not true. It's just stuff that somebody else made up. But why would you believe it if you heard it from somebody else? About, say, a friend of yours. Why would you believe it? But it's, it's a, a big uh, hindrance for an awful lot of people, and they're going to suffer for it. They get a reputation for not being honest and making up stories, then nobody pays attention to what they say, except other people that like to find out dirt on 
on this person or that person. That's what, what's happening with politics right now in this country is I say something that's true, somebody hears it, may they make gossip about it, and all of a sudden it's a negative thing that people are hearing about instead of the positive thing. So you have to be more discerning. Be careful with your speech. That's that's the, the message of the fourth precept. Okay? If you're going to say something negative, bite your tongue first. Okay? Okay. And may I ask another question about karma? Of course. Um, if someone were to awaken and before they would have whatever person being their parent in Nibbana, do all their previous karma have to bear fruit before then? No. Not all of it. Okay. As, uh, it, it's, uh, I'm sure it, it's in the Samyut Nikaya. There's one sutta that says, when you become a Sotapanna, you have given up an ocean of suffering, mm -hmm. an ocean of past actions that would cause you to be uh, reborn in a lower realm. That doesn't happen once you become a Sotapanna. It's a very special thing it makes you unique in the world when you become soda panam because there's so few people that really are yeah. so any other question no, that's it. Thank you, Bhante. Okay. Thank you. Hi, Karen. <laughs> Hi, may I ask you a question? Oh, of course. <laughs> it's a, a little bit related to the person that you knew that okay. we're killing aunts. Yes. <laughs> um, so because, you know, um, a disturbance can come up from previous action, it could be from 500 years ago or from 500 lifetimes ago. Right. And might, one might not necessarily know what they did. Right. And they might still get the same blockage. Right. Then would, would forgiveness meditation be good? Absolutely. In this case? Okay. I'll tell you a quick story. I had a friend that ever since I knew him, he had trouble with his liver. And he suffered a lot, and he went to a lot of different doctors. And he started practicing meditation. And I, I taught him how to do forgiveness meditation. And he was meditating along, and he had a memory of a past life arise, where he was on the beach, and he was 
fighting with a sword and he killed someone. He remembered that and he turned around to get back into the battle and somebody stabbed him in the liver and he died. Oh no. So he said, what am I supposed to do with this memory, with this past lifetime? And I told him to start uh, forgiving. First, for, forgive yourself for killing that other person. And keep on accepting until they forgave you too. And it took a while. And then I said, now you forgive the person that stabbed you in, with the, with the, in the liver. And he did. And as soon as he did, his liver problem went away. So that gives you an idea. So if you have memory of past lifetimes, which can come up at different things, at different times where there's some actions that happen that are affecting you right now, you can forgive. And remember that forgiveness is a kind of acceptance without holding on to pain. Okay? So it's acceptance of your past action and letting go of the guilty feeling of having done that. Did that answer your question? Yes, it did. Thank you. Okay. Anything else? Not right now. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Your face is really radiant right now. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Thanks. So, anybody else have a question? Yeah, Bante. Yeah. I, uh, regarding karma and dependent origination, I think it's better. I feel like thinking, like uh, th thinking in this way, is better. Like, whatever is happening to me is because of some past conditions. Right. And if I take those conditions as myself, then it can cause suffering. It may be happened, the conditions may be created by me of past. Right. Because in in Samyutta Nikaya there is a there is a sutta says that um, are the how is how is it, Master Gautama, are the pleasure and pain created by oneself? It says, uh, not so, Timbaruka. Then the another question is, Master Gautama, are pleasure and pain created by another? Not so, Timbaruka. Master Gautama, are the pleasure and pain created by both, by oneself and another? Not so, Timbaruka. Right. And it, going forward, he says somewhere, uh, if one feels that the pleasure and pain uh, so going forward, it says that if, if one thinks that 
the pleasure is created by me he end up in thinking that i am eternal so what's your point let's not just read the sutta and then say what does that mean what's your point why are you reading this my point is uh yeah karma is affecting whatever happening in the present moment but we should not take uh myself or some other person is causing that because there is no myself or other person there is just the impersonal process of anatta yeah yeah that's why he said myself no it's not caused by myself except in a in a little way of thinking about it it is caused because of the attachment you put to that while yeah. happening yeah yeah that wrong belief is very very strong we've been around how many millions of lifetimes thinking that our mind is in one that's in control and now you're telling it it's not <laughs> and it gets confused which is normal i think but as you start realizing more and more clearly the impersonal nature of everything yeah okay now you're leading your mind towards the wholesome and the more wholesome you become the faster you get off of the wheel of samsara the wheel of samsara is all about i i did this i am that and it's a very subtle little beliefs so we have to learn how to recognize and relax and let go okay okay bante anything else I have a question Bhante. Okay. Um I have a question about links of dependent originations. Yeah. Um when talking about um um the contact giving rise to feeling giving rise to craving and clinging and so on. So it's kind of uh, easier for me to understand about the physical thing but can you um give a little bit more explanation about the mental feeling now to context mental feeling mental you know clinging so my question is the where in, in which time in which time the thoughts come about so thought doesn't appear at the time of the contact right it appear in it's when it craving <clears throat> it's the beginning of it and the contact causes feeling to arise feeling is pleasant painful neither painful nor pleasant yeah. right after that and this doesn't say that in the dependent origination there is craving and that's where you start taking the false belief in a personal self and when you get to clinging 
that's where you have your developed already uh, thoughts and ideas and opinions about who is happening and what is happening. So there is some thought in that. But when it gets to your habitual tendency, that's where thought and emotion really start to get big. So that, that it means that there is no thought when the contact appears, right? No, there's no thought when the contact appears. There is consciousness. Right. That's all. So what the, con the mental context likes? It's like the image or it's like a something? Because you know, when you're talking about physical thing, it's really easy to understand the form or the sound. In terms of mental, um, it's hard to see the, what kind of mental contact is. As soon as that sense door touches the sense object, then that consciousness arises. There's no thought in that. Mm. There's just awareness in that then that feeling of it's pleasant or unpleasant occurs. Okay. And that it's yeah. mental or physical. It really doesn't matter. Right. Either one. And right after that, you have your clinging. And that's the, the start of the nonsense stuff. That's why it's so important to use the six R's and relax. So that doesn't come up. Right. But when we are meditating, we try to catch when the contact appear or when we try to catch the craving and we drop at the time of the craving appearing. I didn't you need to be aware of, you need to be aware of, because then you, you... Of observing, yes. Yeah. The moment it arises, it's going to carry on, it's going to carry on very fit, very fast. It's not something that you're going to be able just to nonchalantly look at and say, oh, I see that. No, it's not going to be like that. Right. See... Where's no oh. that was a hundred and thousand arising and passing away of sign, sign, uh, sound consciousness. Did you see each one of them? No, of course not. It happened so fast, and dependent origination happens fast. But there's enough of them strung together that you'll be able when your mind settles down enough, you'll be able to see how this process actually does work. Yeah. And that takes a lot of uh, wholesome ideas, wholesome thoughts, wholesome actions. 
And the most wholesome you become is when you let go of craving. Okay. Thank you, Bante. Okay. Anybody else? Elizabeth? Yeah. Very quick question, Bonte. Um, I was just thinking about the gentleman who just shared this morning when I was meditating, I had this, this very random uh, memory come up of, of, of just a house mm -hmm. and a place I had been and, you know, remembering your instruction, mm -hmm. like there was this um, awareness that it, it was pleasant it was a, a very pleasant. The fact that it was so random was intriguing. And I just um, let it go. And it was gone. Okay. And it's, it's a very simple example, but it's like there was an invitation to take it further that I didn't, I declined the invitation. Right. And it didn't arise anymore in the meditation. And I still don't know why it arose. And it doesn't really matter. But <laughs> if, any, if anything, it was neutral. It was pleasant. It was intriguing. But it was neutral. And it's kind of like it felt like there was no karma created because at that moment, right. I just, because of, of this right. teaching, to just abandon, <laughs> abandon, <Yeah>. abandon ship. <laughs> Yeah, mine, mine will pop up every now and then with some, some real surprising stuff and you can take a bite at it or not, it's up to you. And <laughs> if you just allow it to be, it'll fade away and won't, won't come up anymore. So yeah. it's, it's just your mind trying to distract you in one way or another. Right. And you didn't bite into it, so that's a good thing. But it was a mental contact, right? It, that, right. That's it was example. mental contact. Yeah. These contacts arise. Yeah. But when you don't take it personally, when you see it just as, well, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting thing and let it go, uh, there's no unwholesome thing that's happening. There is the wholesome of your not getting attached to it. And that's wonderful. This stuff really works, Bonte. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You you know it, it's surprising how many people come to me with a almost a shocked look on their face, and say, "This really does work." <laughs> One of my biggest issues is sometimes when I'm in a group, I can't stop smiling and I feel a lot of joy and I almost feel a little out of place, like um, I need to tone it down. No, and, no, um, no, no, no. <laughs> and then I keep remembering that joy is a factor of awakening. But I was with a group yesterday and they were so grim and I, I was like, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm back in the Catholic church. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I just was like, I told Owen, my husband, <laughs> like, I just, you know, I felt like I had to tone it down and not be so happy. But the Dharma makes me happy. Right. 
And that's perfect. <laughs> I'm going to get you to talk shed, to me. Shed those smiles <laughs> around. Let everybody else feel that. The, the, the sad thing about Buddhism is too many people take the first noble truth as that's it. Everything is suffering. And it's just not. The Buddha didn't teach us to walk around with grim faces. He taught us to walk around with happy faces. And it's, it's surprising how few meditators really understand that. Of course, my meditators understand it because I drum it into you. But you go to other groups and it's like, everybody's suffering and there's there yeah but they don't look at the third noble truth they don't look at the cessation of the suffering i remember i was at a zen class one time and somebody asked what is the real thing with buddhism because they, they didn't know and he slams his hand down on the ground and he said all life is suffering and it was shocking. And me and my big mouth, I said, well, I'm actually more interested in how to let go of the suffering than I am the suffering itself. And he didn't like me back and he didn't bring me back to that class anymore. <laughs> oh, well. So anybody else have a last question? I have a very quick question. Okay. Would a plant be a living being or a tree? Uh, they are alive and they have a consciousness, but not the same kind of consciousness that we have. I mean, I... Um, if I work in the dark. I've been around a lot of plants that were sickly and I start talking to them and I start touching them and they feel that love and they get healthy. But what if I take out weed in the garden? Would that be unwholesome? No, no, no. There, there's no wrongdoing in that. Okay. I live in the forest. Sometimes we have to cut down a tree. But I talked to the tree before we cut it down and let it know that I appreciate it for it being there. Mm -hmm. um, in the forest that I'm in, there's an awful lot of sick trees. Uh, Missouri, before the Westerners came, was all pine trees. And pine trees, they, they have uh, these needles that fall on the ground and they get rid of, we don't have so many uh, uh, pests, insects, like um, there, there wasn't so many ticks, there wasn't fleas, there wasn't uh, a lot of the other no kind of bugs. Mm. 
because the pine pine needles, when they get on the ground, it's a kind of place that makes it unpleasant for them. So we didn't have that problem. And then the Westerners came in and in 10 years, they cut down all of the pine trees in the state and they replaced them with uh, broadleaf trees, which is not indigenous to the area, oak trees and things like that. And as a result, we have chiggers, we have uh, ticks, we have fleas, we have all kinds of problems. And the trees are not as healthy as they were back before that was just pine forest. So we have a lot of insects that eat, eat the trees and then they, they make them weak and the wind blows and they fall down quite easily. But we're starting to clear out the underbrush so when it snows or when it's, when it's uh, raining, it actually goes to the bigger trees so that they can start getting healthy again. And it's, it's real fun being in the forest because it's so quiet here. And you can actually talk with the trees. And they will respond. and talk back. And I know that that sounds really weird, but how else can we have a healthy forest if we don't encourage the trees to be happy with each other, not, not uh, fighting for sunlight and fighting for the water and the other things. So it's getting healthy where we are, but slowly, slowly. But right, right before, if we've had a dry spell, right before it starts to rain, the trees know that it's going to rain and they start singing and it's really great. They, they have unique voices and you can hear them if you quiet down and, and don't get into your scientific analytical kind of thinking. And they become quite happy when, when it starts to rain after a dry spell. So does anybody else have a question? Okay, let's share some merit then. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear-struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find relief. May all beings share this merit that we've thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth Devas and Nagas of mighty powers share this merit of ours. 
May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. So I hope all of you have a wonderful week and come back and see me next Sunday. Okay? Thank you, Bonte. Thank you, Bonte. I'm happy to see so many of you. Thank you, Bonte. It makes me spring with joy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bonte. Okay. Bye, everybody.